Welcome to Post Pandemic. I'm Courtney Carthy. Each episode, we look at a specific part of society, culture, or the world and ask a guest to imagine what that might be like after it's all said and done. Dr. Jamie Cohen has spent his recent years researching the history of virtual reality, writing his dissertation on VR of the late 1980s and early 1990s. He's a cultural and media studies PhD, co-author of the first peer-reviewed article on Pepe the Frog. You might remember him from the 2016 US federal election. Also teaches at Malloy College in Long Island, New York. His recent article, which put me onto him, is in 1-0. It's titled, Virtual Reality is Missing Its Moment Again. You can find a link to that in the episode notes. Dr. Jamie Cohen, I'm quite excited to talk about augmented and virtual reality. Thank you so much for being on post-pandemic. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Are you able to give a brief history of virtual and augmented reality? Because I think the first time I used it was at some sort of video game parlor, maybe in the early 90s. It was pretty terrible. Then it disappeared for a while, and now it seems to have come back in this sort of rush of blood, but then gone away, but sort of coming back, and particularly in times where we are now, where everybody's at home, possibly looking for extra entertainment avenues. Where did it start, and how did we get to where we are now? Sure, that's a great question. So your your timing is absolutely perfect on that. Uh, VR was created as a immersive technology in the mid-60s, as a, a new way of interacting with computer screens. So it's at the same time that the mouse was created and graphics. It was really around that moment. But it took about 20 years-ish before the late 80s, the graphics cards were able to really present immersive three-dimensional designs. And so two different companies together, VPL separately, but two different companies, VPL and Autodesk Cyberspace, were really the first people to kind of consider commercial virtual reality. And that's the virtual reality you speak of, which is the one that was trying to be affordable. And so between 1989 and 1991, VR became quote unquote affordable. And what I mean by affordable is in the $20,000 range to $250,000 range. <laughs> so it wasn't exactly accessible. So what it was, was there's a big fight between the idea, was it a fad or was it a trend? Because it became really prominent as the next new thing in the late 80s and early 90s. And just like that, it disappeared. It disappeared due to the bulkiness, due to the inaccessibility, and also due to the fact that in the arcades, it was like just too unwieldy to actually operate. So as the story has it, in 2012, a man named Palmer Lucky kind of resurrected this, uh, this American man who uh, has a very complicated current history. And in his resurrection, he came up with an idea that's called the, the same as we had as the resurrection of the head-mounted display which is a binocular immersive device with uh, sensors. And the sensors kind of give you an idea of where you are in the room. And that was the Oculus Rift. Two years later, Facebook purchased that for $3 billion. So it was supposed to be the next big thing. And HTC Vive and PlayStation, everyone started putting out these headsets. And as with the previous history, the three years went by and the adoption rate wasn't that full. And augmented reality was walking in just at that exact same moment too. VR means that it is an opaque system. You can't see through it. You're inside the immersive space. And augmented reality means you can see through it and actually see digital objects in physical spaces. 
There is a third version of this called mixed reality, MR, in which you could interact with the digital objects in their actual physical spaces. All three are in competition at this current moment. However, uh, I have a, a view that I believe VR isn't really going to be widely adopted. And I do believe that augmented reality will be pretty widely adopted in the next few years. But there shouldn't be a distinction like VHS versus beta or NTSC versus PAL in formatting. They're, they're distinct, I suppose, sort of formats or contexts, right? Yeah. That is a really, that's a phenomenal question to ask about this because VHS and Betamax were half-inch tape. They were similar technologies, same delivery system, same box, and it was just a matter of what the reader was. When it comes to VR and AR, they're usually designed on the same platform, on uh, game engines, different types of game engines. It really comes down to the type of licensing. It's sort of like watching Netflix versus uh, Apple TV or something. It's who owns the type of content that goes on these. So game licenses really play more into the flavors, so to speak, of what VR and AR are. But in the terms of the, the systems, you're really buying what works best for the users. So if you're buying a PlayStation, the PS4 headset will work better than the Oculus Rift. If you're working with Steam, you would want the HTC Vive. So each of them have their own thing. It's not really so much the same uh, analogy as previous te technologies like Blu-ray and HDD, HD DVD, but it is similar in the way that they are all competing with one another for who's going to be the best, most used product. And would Microsoft HoloLens, is that mixed reality? Yes, the Microsoft HoloLens is mixed reality. It presents an AR environment. You could see the digital objects in physical space, but using gesture control, you could actually touch those objects. So you could actually interact with digital objects. So that is called mixed reality. If anybody would like to see a video of Microsoft HoloLens, there's one in the show notes. It's this guy basically shooting a wall with a plastic gun and there's monsters that robots and stuff that jump out. It's a pretty good demonstration of what mixed reality is, I think. Um, Jamie, where do you see this coming up? You know, what's, what's the next iteration, pandemic aside, what would be the next iteration for VR or AR? I think I have to make an educated guess here and say that it will be specs, spectacles, specs uh, type of designs, augmented reality lenses that look more like glasses. Uh, in both Tim Mon's uh, text infinite detail and in... Um, um, oh, um, Neil Stevenson's fall, they speak about the next iteration of what our interactivity would be. And I think the next interactive would be wearables that we could see augmented reality in front of us. And it would basically be the imitation of an Apple watch, except on our eyes. I think that's most likely to be the large scale adoption of the 2020s is um, face mounted glasses looking AR. Which have already had their day in Google Glass, right? That is correct. Yeah, Google Glass was a proto version of this. I always had a conspiracy theory that they were intentionally ugly as a, a kind of a test to see if we would be willing to even try that type of technology. And <laughs> the answer was overwhelmingly, no, we don't want to try that. Um, but the, the new AR glasses that are more um, audio-based, Amazon has a pair and Bose has a pair. There's also a visual pair by a company called North that just presents a tiny little projection of your daily calendar basically onto the screen. So I don't know um, how adoption will be within the very, very near future, but I do think we're going to be looking more toward uh, less conspicuous headsets. And I think glasses fit that bill. Well, let's get into the seven questions of post-pandemic. Uh, we keep them the same so that perhaps we can draw some sort of comparison. 
with enough data than enough interviews with people across, well, I suppose several different industries, cultures, sectors, societies, and locations around the world. The first question, Dr. Cohen, what will be different? What do you think will be different about AR and VR after the pandemic? Post-pandemic, I really do believe we'll have much more of an appreciation for the way we communicate visually. I think now knowing that we are a screen-based uh, quarantine society where we have to communicate via little boxes on Zoom or WebEx, uh, I think we'll have a very good knowledge about what that means for communication, how that how business can get done. I think we've always been able to do it, but now that we've kind of like created a new structure around that communication style, I think that will become the biggest difference post uh, pandemic when we're let out is what jobs can be done remotely? What ways can we communicate? We're really in an immersive space when we're using these technologies. When we're on Zoom, we're immersed. We are in those types of spaces. We are as we are as all of our lives looking at each other's faces. It is like a way of being with each other remotely. So I think we'll we'll find ourselves in a new way of knowing what type of necessity that is to our lives. Well, when I was younger, trying to explain that the internet's not full of crap to my mum, and when we would talk about, you know, chatting with people online or using messaging boards, I'd have to remind her that there's a person behind this screen name. It's significant because it's a human connection, whatever the medium, um, and it just seems to be getting sort of deeper and deeper and more appreciable as screen names become Real names, real names become real faces, real faces start to move. Is there a way that we're going to maybe in a home office, you'd switch on, you know, your equipment for a meeting, put on your AR glasses and you'd be sort of mildly transported or you'd have sort of busts of your colleagues sitting around your desk or next to your screen so that you could have a meeting like that? I think we dream of that. I think all of us dream of that scene in Avengers where the meetings are actually these holograms. The holograms are only visual either by large standing glass displays or through some sort of visual projection through um, some AR lenses like in the in the television show Westworld. And they, they, I think that's our dream, to be honest. I think it would be much more comfortable to be mobile than have to be tied to a laptop or a desktop. I think we would very much want the idea of real immersivity like, here we are with, with everybody, like, this is what it is. And I think that's important to understand that we would treat these less as novelty and more as necessity. Like, right now, that that's a really novel idea. But I think in the future, I think it, based on commuting, international uh, businesses, I think the idea of, like, sitting around a table with your colleagues and you could see them in three-dimensional space, I think that's an absolute desire of the future. One of the consistent themes that I've seen in public commentary about the pandemic is that it's simply, very simplistically, accelerated the rate of change that we've seen either in adopting technology, thinking, you know, sort of fatalistic thoughts, coming to terms with spending time with your partner, all those sort of things. Is there an acceleration going on in virtual and augmented reality at the moment where maybe people like yourself or people that are building are taking advantage of the current situation? That is the battle that I've been working on academically and my projects. I really do believe that VR missed a huge opportunity here. I think there's been a variety of opportunities in the last five years to really extend the fields, like to create 
a mass adoption rate of the technology. And each time it's come short. In the United States, we had a moment in 2017 or 18 when the New York Times, the newspaper sent out millions of headsets to their users. And the headline of the article was VR becomes mainstream. And it was kind of like this push to have Google Cardboard be part of our everyday life. And it was not really well received. They saw it as a novelty. It was like, neat. And then they took it back off. VR has um, exclusivity issues. It has problems with binocular vision, depth of field. It has um, access for money. It's not a cheap product in any way. Uh, and by doing that, that exclusivity actually like creates its own demise in its own sense. It's like you could you could build as many headsets and devices as you want, but if people don't have access to it, they're not going to be able to use it anyway. So it's got to be affordable first and foremost, and then accessible to those who don't have the ability to, to see. I wear glasses, and I, when I wear the Oculus Rift, it doesn't have room for me to put my glasses on inside the headset. So everything is just slightly blurry when I use it. It doesn't bother me so much, but I know that if my eyesight were worse, it would it would be nearly unusable. Yeah, my problem is um, I fog the glasses with my forehead sweat. Mm-hmm. As does everybody. VR... VR accelerates your um, dopamine because it is immersive. So it actually does feel like you're really in it. So your brain has a, what's nice about VR, it has a really quick switch. You immediately feel like you're in it. The only downside is it actually increases your heart rate, which increases your sweat pores. And then the whole headset gets either foggy or sweaty. In your article that's featured on One Zero, again, there's a link in the episode notes. Oh, Animal Crossing sounds like some sort of mild bridge it's a game on nintendo switch and if you can give a quick description i think it's sort of almost the way of the sims but not really i think that's a a good comparison animal crossing is one of those games that really has no distinct point it has no ending it so it is very much like the sims it's a build your own environment live in your environment and take care of your environment it always reminds you of like the 2020 version of a tamagotchi you know it's like you just got to keep these little things alive although Unlike the Tamagotchis, if you don't feed your Animal Crossing, they still continue to live. I think because that would be horrific to children. Um, <laughs> the uh, Animal Crossing, though, is an immersive space, and it is a place to go, so to speak. And I do remember somebody saying, like, it is a place to go. Like, that, mentally, that's where you want to be, and it kills time, and it eats time. Um, to me, I think virtual reality's VR chat was absolutely could have been the Animal Crossing of today. VR chat is this open source, open platform, uh, first person avatar world where you hop into the avatar world. And instead of seeing your Animal Crossing character from like a almost like a, a God's eye view, you are inside their eyes. And so you could choose that. You can make an Animal Crossing world in VR chat. Uh, but just like all VR stuff, again, it's it's access, knowing how to download Steam and so on and so forth. But Animal Crossing, as far as I could tell, is widely adopted. All of, Almost all of my students are using that on a daily basis. Question two, what do you think will become obsolete for augmented reality or virtual reality? Obsolescence is a very tough thing to consider when we consider technologies because almost everything we've bet on obsolescence has somehow made its own return. Even VR, we, we assumed it was obsolete in 1992 and then it was resurrected in 2012. So it's like, it's interesting to see how the new waves appear. That being said, the bulk headset that came from the early 90s that was resurrected in the 2012, in 2012, teens, sorry, 20 teens, that um, I think the bulk headset 
will be probably become obsolete. I think what we've realized is that people don't like being hindered or, or weighed down by an immobile technology. When you're wearing VR, you can't walk out of the room. You cannot go to the bathroom. You, you risk falling down a flight of stairs or getting hit by cars if you wear it outside. So the, the idea of a headset, I think, will have to be pared down. I don't want to use a word as strong as obsolescence for it because there's probably other uses for it in immersive tech or piloting. But as far as like commercial or usable as far as like people are concerned, I think that the bulky headset is the thing that's going to go. Yeah, I can very much identify with that. It's completely frustrating and it totally breaks the experience when you hit the cable or trying to think of the space in your head sort of while you're experiencing the game and then you think I'm not near the the couch and then suddenly you knock the couch and it completely breaks. Our headset at work has uh, paint scars all over its handsets and, and goggles from people literally hitting the wall so hard that the paint rubs off on the headset. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it's possible that people will build like they built movie rooms or you know movie viewing sort of mini cinemas in their house will build VR rooms? I can only hope so. I think that is going to be the exquisite nature of the product. I think when we do see people, I think the people who already build home studios or home theaters, I think those are the people that are directly in the market of designing an immersive home space. And I do see that as something that is a, a very much one of those ready player one ideas. We'll have a little tiny treadmill in the house with some um, headset devices and gloves that keep you in a locked into a position and the room is designed specifically for immersivity. I do see that, but I see that as very... Um, almost like an exquisite technology or an elegant like high-end product that will be more niche-based than widespread. On to question three, what will be different in your daily life post-pandemic? If you can cast your head forward there, like how are you operating day-to-day that's different from now? That is a question I ask myself on a daily basis. I think the one thing that will be different daily rather than something that it was in the back of my mind is more more an intentional look at how I create media. And this is because we, in this new environment, how we communicate isn't just through these one-to-one telephone as video systems as like Zoom or whatever, or even VR chat or Facebook spaces, but more along the lines of let's create some content that sticks around, that doesn't just act as a piece of like communication. There's Using Zoom is as archivable almost as like, if you're not hitting record, it's like a telephone call. It becomes kind of like this etherware, this ephemeral content. So I think what I will change in my personal life is thinking intentionally about what's to be kept, what's to be archivable. And I think now that's in the front of my mind all the time, because if we're inside for 12 to 18 months, you'd kind of want an archive of this. You'd kind of want to know what you're making inside of that. And I, I think I think I, I think a lot more now about who's viewing my material. I think a lot about my students who are watching my lectures in a non-synchronous manner, uh, I kind of think about them and try to wonder how will they uh, retrieve this content? Like, in, in other words, it's temporal. It's stuck to the pandemic. But post-pandemic, that type of thought process of thinking about what things are temporally attached to the to the moment, I think is really an intentional forethought that I will carry with me post this event. If we could just go to your your meme hat for a second, is are you seeing the the cycles of um, memes increase or decrease in speed at all? My way of keeping track of what's going on is I archive memes. I am a, an actual official memeticist as well, 
And memeticist is somebody who studies the culture or the community behind memes. And um, I've been tracking them since late January as they travel through the world. So my diary, that could be put around quotes, is kind of like an archive of other people's memes and how they've evolved. At first, it was like funny jokes. And then as they made it to Italy, you get to watch how they evolved in Italy. And then I got to watch how they went to France. And then I got to watch how they ended up in the United States. And then at a certain point, as of today, I'm still archiving them. And one meme today just simply said, when you laugh at uh, pandemic memes, and then the next frame was, and then you realize it's kind of really dark. <laughs> and and, it, and it's like, yeah, that's just how many people feel. So I think memes are still good, a good creative outlet. And that's my diary. That's my way of knowing what's going on. I've been, if you travel them by date, I have a nice timeline of the of the virus traveling through internet culture well so um that i think might bring us to the next question question number four what positives do you see coming from COVID 19 other than um maybe you know a great meme diary to document it all <laughs> you know and that you're the first person to ever think that a meme diary would be a positive effect um the uh um, a lot of people still look at memes like they're very odd, which they are, and dark, which they are as well. But I do think that could be a positive. Personally, I think the big positive to come from this, and it, this is in sincerity, in real sincere thoughts of this, is that we hopefully will have a framework of what to do when this happens again. And I use the term when only not not as a cynic, but as a realist due to climate change and due to the possibilities of uh future pandemics that may occur. I think education, where where uh, I do a lot of my work, was somehow, oddly, somehow wildly unprepared for this uh, event, this switchover. In 2011, I came up with a framework, what's known as a contingency framework of teaching remotely. And in 2011, there was nothing really that caused the impetus to enact that. Um, and now today, everybody, like a very large, very large, large light switch had to switch to remote work. What I'm hoping as a positive is that we have frameworks of how to handle this situation and how to create better rubrics for online learning, for online immersive connection, for communicating through these spaces. Also, the way we speak, we speak differently when we speak on Zoom or we speak differently when we speak through uh, video technologies. I think this that's the positive is that we learn a lot about how we communicate and teach and educate in this new in the new post-pandemic world. I'd say arguably the education sector, maybe well, university sector is probably better prepared to enact this sort of you know remote learning because it's been arguably on the cards or growing in popularity over the last at least five years. Yeah, there's, I think, higher education, where I work, I teach college, they were far more prepared than K-12, second primary and secondary education. Um, there was no real idea of how to switch. It's a very sad and unfortunate story from, from a United States standpoint because we, we lack real good structure in keeping track of young people, especially in vulnerable communities. Um, from using remote sections. Like we, the United States is not as well connected as many people might imagine it to be. And it is a loss for a lot of young people. In colleges, there's already an expectation that you may have to take remote courses. So I think colleges already had a sort of framework. We have learning management systems. Uh, but a lot of faculty 
uh, as you can imagine, were, are, are not too comfortable with that or they're just not too into it. So it, it is one of those like big, well, too bad. You got to use it now. And then they, uh, I think this is like each class you can't, some classes are very difficult to translate to digital spaces. And this gives, I think it's never too late to learn something new. And I think it's great for any type of person to learn how to teach something differently. Question five, how do you think you'll describe the pandemic to somebody in the future who had no experience of it? This is, uh, I brought this up today with my students in a live online session. And I said, you have to remember, you are living through a plague. This is what a plague is. This is what it seems like. So someday when you tell your children um, what happened, you you live through what what is a plague. You Fortunately, it was not a devastating world-ending plague. Fortunately, it was not as big as the one in the early 20th century. But it was in terms of immobility and control and switches of the government and handling the situation. It's a plague. And so what I would tell someone who didn't live through it is to imagine that scenario. It's just we are very fortunate in the 21st century to not to, to know more about the science. We have a, a very good way of knowing what happens due to previous events. So our pandemic is the word plague is too scary to use for this pandemic, but that's the only way I would translate it to somebody who would not have lived through it. Question six, if you were to write a book, film, or TV series about the global pandemic, what would you call it? Oh, I was thinking about this for some time. This is honestly, as, as somebody who's really trying to write more often and, and think about uh, this topic, um, I think I would call it like the long history of bitter stops. <laughs> Something along the line of uh, something that just comes to abrupt halt. So the long history of of abrupt halts or something like that. It, it would be a way of describing all moments that lead to this significant uh, break where we also switch in something. But I, I would like to, I would, as a, as somebody who likes history or likes to frame things in terms of context, I think understanding it as a long history is far better. So it would be the long history of bitter halts or abrupt stops. <laughs> Great. And question seven, what do you think we should be paying attention to now that will affect life after the pandemic? So a statistic, action, news story, some sort of change, anything in VR or augmented reality that's going on at the moment that you can see will be significant later on? I think the the change in the way we support small business or small companies. I think that's the thing we should be really focusing on at this exact moment. I think we're we're working within this space of hope right now and and kind of like saying, well, we'll, we'll, we'll hope the hopefully this works out. But I think what we should pay very specific attention to are the smaller companies and the smaller businesses that are trying to innovate. And I'm speaking very much along the lines of technologies. In terms of like small tech companies that have been arising, you may see these small vacuums now when they're unable to sustain themselves in an economy that's sort of not operating or being able to distribute or create. You might actually see private equity swoop in or you might actually see large corporations buy out or just simply shut down these tiny little companies. And I think it's really important for us to pay very close attention to that because it creates the model of what's going to happen next. Are we going to be a, a world of, of many, many different major warehouses with tiny little uh, pop-up shops? Or are we going to see small companies prevail and innovate outside of this? 
if we're not paying attention to that, I think we're just simply opening the door for major companies to operate the future. I always give the example of by and large from Disney's Pixar's, which is like this one monolith company that kind of owns all other companies. And we don't, I, I don't think that's good for business. I don't think that's good for technology. Uh, I think that that's the type of thing that we should watch. That's the thing we should be focusing on most specifically at this moment and keeping track of. And if anyone would like to see a film about that, it's called Idiocracy, uh, came out. <laughs> when was that? Maybe about 15 years ago now, I think. Yeah, Mike Judge. And that Mike Judge once said, you know, I didn't really intend on that becoming a documentary, but it's <laughs> it turned out to be quite prescient in this moment. I would say the two movies to watch are, are Wally and... Um, Idiocracy. <laughs> yeah, and I think Terry Crew looks just as old now as he did back when Idiocracy was he filmed. Same he has with aged quite well. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Dr. Jamie Cohen, thank you so much for being on the episode and really appreciate your insight and expertise. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I am, I am beneath it all, beyond being a realist, I am a positive. I do think there's positives to come from this. So thank you again for having me. Dr. Jamie Cohen, Cultural and Media Studies PhD, mimologist and founder of New Media Program at Malloy College in Long Island, New York. His recent article in One Zero is titled Virtual Reality is Missing Its Moment Again. You can find a link to that and more in the episode notes. If you're enjoying post-pandemic, please leave a review where you can. Get in touch if you'd like to suggest a topic or a guest. Hello at postpandemic.xyz. Post Pandemic is hosted by me, Courtney Carthy. Production is by Neely Media. Cover artwork by Studio Baker. And our theme music was created by Alex Shulgin. <laughs> <laughs>